Hey friends, I'm Brian Doak and this is George Fox Talks Theology. This season on the Theology Channel, we are going to do a new thing. Instead of being here in the studio, which we are for most of our episodes, as you know, we're going to bring you live theology events from the campus of George Fox University. Some of these might be planned lectures in the evenings and some of these might be a classroom environment um, where we're teaching our students about scripture. But whatever the case, you got to imagine yourself in a live setting with an audience there. And if you're watching these, of course, on YouTube, you can see it. And if you're listening, you can think about it and, pl and place yourself right there in the seat of that audience. Really excited for these because they're all so good. We hope you enjoy. This morning, we are here to discuss evil. The problem of evil and the Bible. I knew it wouldn't be terribly difficult to find examples of evil in our world to begin with. So I waited until yesterday morning and uh, I just typed in CNN.com. And what came up? was this. Nicholas Cruz, the man who walked into a high school on February 14th, 2018, and murdered 17 innocent people. Sadly, it's not difficult to find evil in our world, is it? I clicked on another couple of things. Of course, the war rages on in the Ukraine. There's evil out there, and then sometimes there's evil, and, and what I mean by evil also is, is suffering, not just moral evil, but any kind of suffering the various evils that plague our lives. There's evil out there, and then sometimes there's evil uh, and suffering that hits closer to home. The same day, yesterday, I logged onto Facebook at about 7 p.m. and saw that a friend of mine, a former colleague, a wonderful man who has three children about your age, he just died after a four-year battle with cancer. You have your own version of this, right? We all do. Evil surrounds us. We're swimming in it. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? And what do those of us who take seriously the Bible and the God of the Bible, what do we do with that? How do we make some sense of evil in our world? Well, people have tried to do that for a while. They've tried to make sense of evil in the world. And there's this phrase that's in the title, the problem of evil. In case you're not familiar with that phrase, it refers to a philosophical problem. Our modern day thinking about the problem of evil as a philosophical problem that relates evil and God, really got on its feet in the year 1755. Because on November 1st, 
1755, the people of Europe had their own front page evil to reckon with, namely the Lisbon earthquake, which geologists today say had a Richter scale magnitude of 9.0, just massive. The Lisbon population at the time was 275,000. 90,000 of the citizens died. And an, another 10,000 uh, killed in Morocco. So 100,000 people dead from this giant earthquake. And such an incalculable weight of evil and suffering, in this case natural evil, prompted philosophers to think again about this question. What do we do? How do we make sense of this stuff? And so early modern philosophers like Leibniz and, and Hume, David Hume, they started to think about this. And David Hume put forward uh, in a work he wrote called Dialogues, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, he rearticulated this classic form of the problem of evil, drawing on the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus. And he said this, Epicurus's old questions are yet unanswered. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? In other words, where then does evil, evil come from? And so, let's put it as these, these three lines, the way it's classically been summarized, this problem of evil. God is omnipotent, that is to say, all-powerful. God is omnibenevolent, that is to say, all-loving, perfectly loving. And yet, this third line, evil exists. And the reason it's a problem is because the first two might seem to imply that there shouldn't be a third line, right? If God is all-powerful, he can do anything. Nothing can stop him from whatever he wants to do. If he has a desire, unlike us, we have desires all the time and we can't do it, right? I'd like to slam dunk basketball and a hoop, <laughs> can't do it. Whatever God wants to do, he's able to do. That's the idea here. Okay, but then you might say, well, what if he's an evil God? What if he's not very good? What if he doesn't want to do good to people? Okay, then, then it makes sense that evil would exist. He'd want it to exist, to plague the human race. But then you bring in the second aspect. Oh, but he's omnibelevant. He's all-loving. He wants what's good for everyone. He loves everyone with a perfect love. Well, then why would he want there to be evil? But he seems to have the power, being all-powerful, to stop it. So why is it there? Now, at this period, so we're still thinking about this early modern philosophical articulation of it, these philosophers are putting it in terms of that it's a, a problem for, for how we think about the nature of God. And this, of course, is a time where you have deism, if you're familiar with that idea. idea. Deism is the idea that, yeah, there is a God, but he doesn't really care all that much about humanity. He's not really involved in human affairs. He just kind of created the world and then, and then walked away. So at this point, 
you know, the options on the table are, well, yeah, maybe we just, there's, there's not a God that we can relate to. There's not a God that we can trust. But eventually, as the discussion moves in the, in the last couple hundred years in philosophy, and really what prob probably David Hume had in mind all along, is that it's a problem for God's existence as such. Is it even reasonable, is it even rational to believe that a God of the type number one and number two exists in light of the existence of evil? Again, maybe an evil God exists, or maybe a not very powerful God uh, who's good exists, but to think that there is an all-powerful and all-loving God that exists while evil exists, this was taken to be a problem, and it was developed into a kind of logical problem. And so, there's the fourth part. Um, there is a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga who tried to respond to what he regards as the logical problem of evil, uh, he wrote this book in, uh, I believe, the late 60s, originally. And he says, he, he basically comes up with what's called the free will defense, that at the end of the day, you can attribute evil in the world to the fact that God has granted free will to human beings, and that inevitably is going to am amount to, you can't control what they're going to do, they're going to do some evil. So he says, the free will defense shows that the existence of God is compatible both logically and probabilistically, that's a fun word, with the existence of evil. Thus, it solves the main philosophical problem of evil. Okay, well, that's the philosophical background, we could say, for the problem of evil. So that's, in a sense, half of our title for today. But to be honest, that's not the half that I'm interested in. Because the other half of our title is and the Bible. And the question is, how does this modern-day philosophical problem, the way it's come down to us at this point, how does it relate to the Bible? How does it relate to what the Bible says? How does it relate to what the biblical authors are interested in? Is this modern-day philosophical problem a problem that we can even find in the, in the Bible? And I would suggest to you that the answer is no, not so much. Not exactly. We definitely find evil in the Bible, no doubt. And we definitely find evil as a problem in the Bible. And we definitely find the biblical writers thinking about and wrestling with evil as a problem. But we, what we don't find them doing is framing that problem in the same way that these modern philosophers have framed the problem. For one thing, the Bible just takes for granted God's existence, right? How, can you think of any passage in the Bible that is a discussion about whether or not God exists? No. There's only one little line that you maybe are familiar with that shows up a, a couple times in the Psalms that says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. But it's just this psalmist speaking about a fool, and there's no debate, there's no problem of evil type discussion or argumentation about it. Um, it's just that little line. So the Bible takes for granted God's existence. But secondly, these philosophers have tended to look for what's called a theodicy. Let me show the slide on that. Now, theodicy means that a justification for God, okay? Theos is the Greek word for God, and then dikaios is the Greek word for being just or righteous. So a theodicy, which is a term you should know, 
Uh, you're going to see it again probably in your life. Um, it means a justification for God in light of one, two, three, especially number three. In light of the existence of evil, how can God be justified? How can he be shown to still be righteous in light of evil? And a theodicy is a kind of full explanation that is meant to solve this problem, to solve the problem of evil. And what I want to suggest to you, again, coming back to the Bible's take on these things, as I'm right now just summarizing, is that I don't think the Bible provides a theodicy. I don't think the Bible is interested in providing a theodicy in the way that modern-day philosophers are. For example, Part of a theodicy often is, how do you explain the origin of evil? Where does evil come from? And a lot of modern day, not only philosophers, but even Bible readers come to the Bible with that kind of question, don't we? Where's the origin of evil in the Bible? I've had a lot of students write pa their papers uh, on this sort of question. For example, it's, what is brought up is the fall of Satan. Right? Maybe you were already thinking about that. And there's a, you know, I mentioned uh, this category of the Satan that we saw at the beginning of Job last time on Monday, and by the time we get to the New Testament, we do have a clear embodiment of evil in a being called Satan. But the Bible doesn't say where Satan came from, and attempts to see this fall of Satan, that he was originally this good angel who fell, in the Bible, well, they, they themselves fall short. Uh, for example, what's often appealed to is Ezekiel 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. Well, it says right there, <laughs> you are a man and no God. And what I put in bold is who is being spoken to here? The prince of Tyre, Okay a leader of a nation of that time that was historically situated. There's no reason to think it's talking about the fall of Satan, even though sometimes people read it that way. Uh, as we've been emphasizing in this course, we have to pay attention to what the text actually says, not presuppositions that we bring into it. Or, you know, you might appeal to Genesis chapter 3, which of course we did a close reading of earlier this semester. But what does it say? As a reminder, brings in this serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, and of course it goes on, I'm not going to repeat things we've already studied, but what's my point now? Again, it doesn't say Satan, and it, it actually says God made this serpent. It's more crafty than any other beast of the field, but it's certainly, right in this verse, we don't have any kind of idea that there was this angel that then fell and, be, and took the form of a serpent and all that stuff, right? That's all a kind of backstory that, that we bring to the text that's it's not there. Now, that could theologically be true. All that stuff could have happened. I'm just saying it's not here actually stated in the Old Testament, okay? So maybe it's not what we should, this, maybe it's not a path that we should be pursuing when we, when we try to think about um, God and evil and the Bible. What about free will? Okay, we already, I already mentioned the free will defense of Plantinga. Well, again, it's not necessarily a category that the, that the Bible is thinking about. You don't have a term for free will. That's a modern-day term, free will. It's not in the Bible. 
And again, maybe you could draw that out theologically, but there is never in Scripture an argument that the basis for why there is, or the, yeah, the reason for why there is evil in the world is because of free will. It never says that in any kind of clear way. So at this point, you might be thinking, oh great, this is just so helpful. <laughs> right? You're telling all, all these things that the Bible doesn't say on the topic. Like, why are we even here? Well, my point so far is just that the Bible is framing these questions and the answers it gives differently than the framing we are used to coming to it with, okay? So we maybe need to adjust our framing. I love philosophy, and I love thinking about philosophy, and I actually love relating the Bible to philosophy. It's what a lot of my, my own work and, and scholarly research has been on. But we have to be careful that we're not just bringing these philosophical assumptions to the Bible in the way that we read it. The biblical texts are not themselves works of modern philosophy, and they don't speak in the sort of logical syllogisms that philosophy does. So, what I rather want to suggest, and here we get to something I'm actually putting forward instead of what I'm sort of denying, um, is that the Bible's own thinking about God and evil works in the realm of images. What I mean by images is depictions of who God is, depictions of how we might think of God, depictions of God and his relation to, to evil, and from there how we might relate to God on those issues, how we might come to God on those issues. The 20th century Christian writer A.W. Tozer famously said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a very strong claim, and you might disagree with it, but surely, at least for people of faith, how we think about God is very important because that's what's going to get us through the hardest times in our lives. So what I'd like to do is walk through several of these images, these ways of conceptualizing God that are presented to us in the Bible. But more specifically, I wanted to focus on one event in the Bible that was their own front page evil, namely the siege and destruction and fall of the city Jerusalem in 586 B.C. It's one of the most momentous events in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament. So much of the literature of the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, is geared towards that event, is sort of warning that it's going to happen, and then is writing about the aftermath of it. Um, it, was, it was huge for them. It was their Lisbon earthquake. It was their 9-11, you know, however you want to relate it to modern-day categories. So how did some of the biblical writers conceptualize God? How did they image God after that happened? How were they thinking about God's relation to that evil that they went through? So I'm going to give five. I'm going to give five images of God that come through um, the Old Testament literature after this event. The first is a notion of God. Oh, there it is. The first is a notion of God as a warrior. Now, this is from a psalm that was clearly written after the 586 B.C. destruction of Jerusalem. It says, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set your sanctuary on fire. They, they literally did burn down the temple. 
the Babylonians did. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. Okay, then what does this writer go on to say? He says, yet God my king is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And then he goes back in time in his conceptualizing of God. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan, this ancient sea dragon. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So what is he doing? The starting point, again, is this historical situation of, of this destruction of Jerusalem. But he begin, as he's praying, which literally was praying, writing a psalm, written prayer, he begins to move back in time, begins to conceptualize God as the God who is a warrior, who has in the past fought for his people, who ever since the inception of, of Israel and even the world has been waging battles against the forces of chaos. Now, some of you more rambunctious types uh, or fantasy types, you might say, yes, this is the image of God that I've been waiting for all my life. You know, God as Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. <laughs> Again, this is one of those things where we as moderns tend to want to ask the question, well, wait a second, where did this sea dragon even come from? What is the origin of this force of, of evil and, and chaos? But the psalm doesn't say. The psalmist is not interested in explaining the origin of evil. It's interested in seeing God as the one who fights against evil, who wages the battles against chaos in our world because the author is basically seeing ancient Leviathan in this author's view equals modern-day Babylon, right? The enemy that has come to bear. These forces are just there. It's as though they keep, prop, they keep cropping up, and if you've ever played the game uh, Whack-A-Mole, you know the game? <laughs> the game Whack-A-Mole involves you know, these heads that are, keep popping up in different places. And so for the, for the writer of this psalm, it seems that God is battling evil that keeps popping up, right? It was Leviathan in the ancient times, now, in modern times, it's the Babylonians who are destroying the city. So what is it going to be for us, right? Either way, God is a warrior who's playing whack-a-mole against the forces of chaos. Okay, let's look at another one. God as the discipliner. Now, this is from the book of Lamentations. It says, For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, for there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. So again, you can see that this is a response to the evil of the destruction of Jerusalem that the writer has in mind. And I doubt that we would all want to lean on this explanation, namely, God is punishing us, God is, dis God is disciplining us. 
I doubt that we would want to lean on this explanation at all times in our lives, right? Not every suffering we go through, as the book of Job makes clear, is because of our own wrongdoing, our, our own sin. But I think it's also fair to say that sometimes that may be the case. In this situation, the writer and other biblical writers acknowledge that, yeah, Israel did sin in some massive ways. They did leave behind their covenant with Yahweh in some significant ways, and therefore God brought discipline on them through the hands of the Babylonians. This uh, anecdote has been relayed many times, but it's worth doing so again. The Catholic 20th century writer, George, uh, sorry, G.K. Chesterton, uh, the newspaper, The Times in London, in the early 1900s, they posed this question to several authors, what's, the world, what's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton is said to have responded with just this much. He said, dear sir, I am yours. G.K. Chesterton. So Chesterton got this, right? He got that there's going to be times in our lives where the suffering that we experience is in some way a result of our own wrongdoing. Again, this doesn't mean this is happening all the time, and we don't want to go too far with this and get into a always blame the victim ideology. But in light of the pervasiveness of evil in our own hearts and hands, it surely plays some role at times. Okay, so that's the second image. Here's the third one. God as a listener. This is from Psalm 88. It says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. And then it ends with this haunting line. He says, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This is uh, one of the many lament psalms in the Bible. But this one is unique in that most of the lament psalms end with some sort of positive note, that even when, if a lot of the psalm is negative and the psalmist is describing their suffering, usually they end with some sort of note of praise, a, a way that they can still find praise and trust. But this one doesn't. You, again, you see the last line, just darkness is my closest friend. And that leads me to a question, is God in this psalm or is God not in this psalm? Well, begins, you are the God who saves me, despite everything that follows. But really what I want to notice is just the, the you, the, the second person pronoun. The psalmist, despite the absolute lamenting, grievous state that the psalmist is in, he still talks to God still saying you, it's still a prayer, it's still poetry spoken to God. In other words, God is here as a listener, a listener to our cries. And I think that's something we can really apply in our own moments of suffering. That yes, in your moments of suffering, you could, if you wanted, read the works of Alvin Plantiga or David Hume and think about the philosophical problem of evil. 
Or alternatively, you could speak as the psalmist does to God, not just simply about God, but to God, using the word you and knowing that God is a listener. Again, we may not have all the answers, we may not have all the solutions, the, the logically perfectly tight solution to the problem of evil. I mean, maybe we do. Maybe planting us is the one. I'm not saying it's not necessarily, but the point in these biblical passages is something else. It's providing a depic- depiction of God that we can turn to. Okay, another one, God as Redeemer. This is the fourth out of of five. God as Redeemer. This is from Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. This is a beautiful passage, isn't it? It's deeply comforting. The whole section of the book of Isaiah that this is in, starting with chapter 40, is, it's really like a big hug. <laughs> because it does describe, it, it does It does include the disciplinary action element that we saw uh, a few minutes ago. It does say that Israel was punished in the form of Babylonians destroying Jerusalem and being exiled to the city of Babylon or to the nation of Babylon. That's all true. But now, from the perspective of here in Isaiah 40 and following, 43, now they're coming back. They're coming back, and God is reviving the nation. And it's, what I think of with this is it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and you misbehave in some bad way and you get sent to your room and, you know, there's a, there's a yelling match maybe between you and, and your parents and, and they send you to your room and you're in there, you're pouting and maybe you're like punching the pillow, um, you're still angry and it takes a few hours and eventually, gradually, you calm down and your parent comes along and knocks on the door and says... Can we talk? And they come in, and you hug it out, <laughs> right? And you, and you get a big hug from your parent. That's kind of what's happening here. It's on the other side of the hard stuff, on the other side of being disciplined. And God is saying, fear not. You're still my child. You're still my beloved. I am absolutely with you to the end. God is Redeemer. One more. One more image of God I want to present to you. And this is from the book of Job. And I'm calling it God as Cosmic Commander. This is, uh, actually on Monday we got into the beginning of the book of Job and then we had to abruptly stop uh, after chapter two. But uh, as you've read for this week, the the book of Job goes on and Job is struggling to make sense of his, his sufferings, and there's 30-some chapters of a dialogue between Job and his three friends, which initially are helpful in that they just say nothing and sit with him for seven days uh, in silence, but then eventually they start to get into these d- debates with him, and they kind of go nowhere, basically. But eventually, as Job desires, God shows up. God appears at the beginning of chapter 38. And... Um, This is what he has to say. I'm just drawing a few sentences to give us the idea, but here's what God says when he shows up to speak to Job. 
Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Okay, so this is the final text that I'm saying is a response to uh, 586 B.C. destruction of Jerusalem. This one is the least explicit. All the other ones, it was very obvious from the text and from scholars who study it that that's what was going on. In this case, you wouldn't get just from reading the book of Job that this is the context, right? But it's the scholarly consensus that the book of Job was written in the 6th century B.C., that means the 500s, which means it was after 586, most likely, and very likely, the book is, in some way, a response to that problem. It's just not saying so, because it's, it's, it's basically taking that communal, national problem, and it's putting it through the lens of this one individual sufferer. And so at the beginning of the book, what we talked about last time, and, and what you read this week, you know, chapters 1 and 2, Job as an individual, his family and, and his, his household is desolated. Well, perhaps the book is a kind of parable about the desolation that Israel has just gone through as well, and how Israel and its individual uh, constituents are thinking about where is God in the midst of the destruction of our nation and our people. And so what would God be saying? Well, we just read it. He's conveying his, his absolute command of the cosmos, his ability to control the elements, um, to, to control the, even the most powerful creatures. We didn't list it here, but he goes on to talk about Leviathan, who we already saw, uh, or behemoth, these powerful creatures. And God commands them, and they obey at his will. Uh, the, uh, the wind, the skies, the movement of, of the heavenly uh, elements, all of it is at God's command. It all does his bidding. And is that, a, a, is that a way that a person like Job or an individual in Israel at the time can begin to trust God in the midst of their chaos? Yeah, you could see how that would be the case. Okay, so that was a lot. Um, our heads may be swimming now. What am I getting at? Is there one exact solution to the problem of evil? Maybe there is, maybe, again, Alvin Plantinga has figured it out or other philosophers. But again, my point is the Bible goes about it in a different way. It doesn't try to present some logical solution that would satisfy modern philosophers. Instead, it gives us these rich images. And I think that's more helpful. I think that's more helpful when you're actually going through suffering to turn to a book like Job, to turn to the Lament Psalms, to turn to the Book of Lamentations. Um, it's helpful. It's pastorally helpful. It's personally, individually helpful to do that. And so, as we said on the very first day of this class, the Bible is a library, right? It's not just one book. It's a united book in that sense, but it's a collection of books um, that have been written over time. And 
on different days in your life, in the midst of the various troubles you are going to go through, you're going to turn to different parts of the Bible. I hope, I hope you will turn to the Bible and turn to different sections, right? There may be times in your life when you are facing enemies and you need to know that God is the warrior who fights for you. There may be times when you know that you've massively messed things up and you know that what's going on in your life is the result of a kind of discipline from on high. There may be times when you just, you just need to say stuff to God, <laughs> right? And you don't really want him to do anything necessarily. You just want to say stuff and want him to be the listener. Um, there may be times when you will take comfort knowing that he's a redeemer. There may be times um, when you'll take comfort knowing that he's the cosmic commander who controls all of the elements in our world. As a colleague uh, here reminded me the other day, life doesn't come with trigger warnings, okay? There are those days when you're just going to get the phone call that you did not see coming. What are you going to do? What are you going to do then? That is not the time to figure out your theology. It's not the time to figure out how you view God in relation to the evil and sufferings that you'll face. That's the time to already have some notions of it, already have some images, some conceptions of who God is in relation to the world's evils. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.